2005, the Louis Armstrong International Airport in New Orleans became the busiest airport in the world for a short amount of time because of Hurricane Katrina. A lot of lives were saved that day and a lot of people were displaced from their homes, but they found one dry spot in all of New Orleans and that was the airport. And the reason that airport was not underwater was because of primarily our guest today, Mr. Mario Rodriguez. Yes. Mario Rodriguez is an aviation expert with over 29 years of experience in both the private and public sectors. He's been appointed by numerous presidents mm -hmm. on uh, national boards uh, of safety for aviation. Uh, prior to coming to the Indianapolis Airport Authority, he transformed the Long Beach Airport, as well as, like Nate just said, led the disaster relief efforts over in uh, New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. He is an incredible person, uh, one of the kindest, smartest, immediately friendly people yes. uh, I've ever met. And we got to have a conversation with him in his office at the Indianapolis <laughs> International Airport. But it was an amazing conversation about leadership, about what you do in crisis. And his philosophies around customer experience. Customer experience. And who the airport actually really serves mm -hmm. at the end of the day, which I think is a lot more refreshing than what we are used to hearing right. from business and executives of always the bottom line, bottom line, revenue, right. revenue. So, And Mario's philosophy is my customers own this airport. Right. It's here for them. Right. And it's clear when you walk into that airport uh, that it's being run by someone with that customer experience philosophy. Right. It's a different experience. I hate airports. I can't stand them. And I travel all the time. But I will say the Indianapolis International Airport makes everything easy. Yes. It's intuitive. Right. And uh, we get into a lot of why that is. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with Mario's philosophy. And how he's able to really get his team, put his team together to have that same focus and that same drive without him to implicitly tell them this is what you have to be doing. They right. just know. Right. And that's something that's special. And if every executive can bottle that up and <laughs> bring it to every company. Right. If we could replicate right? that, yes. the world would be a happier place. Yes. So. It was an amazing conversation. We know you're going to love Mario. You're going to love the stories that he tells. And I think you'll learn a lot from his philosophies on leadership as well. Yes. So we hope you take a moment and sit back and listen with us. You know, one of the things that I noticed about coming in here today, we parked in the parking garage and Mari said they they have free Dasani water out there in these coolers and none of us believed her. Yes. We were like, no, they don't. They wouldn't just mirage. give out. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't just give out Dasani water. And yet here's this like two coolers of Dasani water that says, what does it say? Happy travels. Or happy, happy travels. Enjoy your Dasani water on us. Or that is like that. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. Enjoy enjoy the water on us. Why wouldn't we give you free water? No one does. That's why. You don't see that. You anymore, never right? see that. I've never been to well, an airport. It, it, where you see that. Remember, remember the whole concept. You actually own this place. It's not a tagline. You own this place. It's a public entity. Do you want free water? Yeah. Okay. You got it. On, on the roof, can we have free flights too? We'd like. We don't own the airlines, but oh, if we do own the airlines, point. we'll give that's you a free a good flight. Point. But we brought spirit here. 
which could fly you from here to basically uh, Florida or Allegiant for about $59 each way. Really? Yeah, they're, they're called the ultra-low-cost carriers, and this is the new breed of carriers. It's very close. If you've ever been to Europe and flown Ryanair, they've dissected what an airline should be, and they've removed all the fluff. So in reality, it's just conveyance from point A to point B. And What sort of things are fluff? What's been removed? Food on the airplane. They'll sell you food, but trust no, no me. No free Cheez-Its? You shouldn't eat them on the airplane. <laughs> um, he said that. I know this is a podcast, so you can't see Mario's face, but he looked dead into my eyes and said, don't eat airplane Cheez-Its. <laughs> I'm terrified because I had one on the way here. It, it'll no, it'll be fine. There, there's a lot of antibiotics that can take care of it. Fantastic. But, I need uh, penicillin immediately. <laughs> but but back in the 40s and 50s, everybody considered aviation the golden age of aviation. It, it was incredibly expensive. I think back in the 40s, and I don't know why I remember the state of point, a round-trip ticket in the United States was about $300. In today's dollars, it's about $5,100. That's insane. So it was a luxury. How exactly. did anyone fly? You had to have a lot of money. Dust the suits, the nice dresses. Uh, so it, it was it was kind of interesting. Now... Last year, the average ticket price, round-trip ticket price in the United States, I think was $369. And you could fly from here to Florida for $59 each way. Now, you have to pay extra for your luggage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're carrying a backpack, it's $59. That's incredible. That's it. So it just becomes conveyance. What's the experience like? You get on an airplane, you put on your seatbelt, and um, you get there, and that's it. What more do you want? What more do you want? (laughs) No, 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 it, it breaks down into conveyance. It used to be a whole event to fly. It really shouldn't be. It's just conveyance from point A to from point B. They're safe. They're efficient. You're not going to get the frills that you get in in another carrier. But do you want to pay that much for it? You know, right. it's just a balancing right, right, right. act. If you want to pay X amount of dollars, you could go on any of the other legacy carriers and you could have a meal or a drink or whatever. If you don't want to do that and you want to... Just $59, you want to go $59 right. each way, bring your own water bottle on board. You could buy water on board and you could buy soda, but everything else is sold on board. It's like Ryanair. And these ultra low costs are really, the market share is incredibly expanding because their target audience are millennials and younger. Because millennials never had, never were contaminated with the golden age of aviation. They don't remember a time where you had incredible customer service in, in airlines. They just want to get from point A to point B. They want that choice, right? They want to have that choice, that control over what they want and what they don't want. And that's what they're giving them as well. Well, I'd like to go back to the water just being given away in the parking garage because that's an incredible, from the second you get here, you park your car, you're walking in the airport, you're already creating this incredible customer experience. Oh, absolutely. Uh, What are some other things that you've done specifically here in the Indianapolis International Airports uh, that will that have heightened uh, customer experience and made this like a really intuitive airport to navigate. It's very simple to get in and out of here. Um, I'm through this airport constantly, and I just really enjoy my experience here. Um, it's always very clean. People are very polite, um, and it just seems like okay, everything makes sense here. And then. It's the little touches of Dasani water <laughs> and like, hey, you know, welcome home or enjoy, enjoy your journey or whatever. What else have you done here to heighten that experience? It, there is so much 
we have done and we continue to do. Now, you may not know it, but we have the fastest Wi-Fi in the United States in any terminal, and it's free. You don't know it for a very simple reason. There's no splash page. So you don't have to click anything. I, I always thought that was idiotic. So our, we had our lawyers look into it, and they had almost an apoplectic seizure that we didn't put the, hey, look, if you use this for any nefarious purposes, whatever, we just took it out. And it's just implicit in your use of, of the Wi-Fi. You could, I mean, the, the thing has so much, so much bandwidth that it's incredible. It just is. And we've spent a ton of money making sure that you're comfortable. All the concessions are being replaced. And we've more, more uh, retail is going to go in there. And we're constantly, it, what we're doing is constantly questioning the status quo and changing it and making it better for the customer. We're also taking this and using it as a platform to help the economy and make a better economy. One of the, one of the things that we're doing, which is customer centric and also economic centric, is that we're using this as a platform for startup tech companies. So there's a lot of things that are happening inside the terminal that wouldn't otherwise happen without these tech companies. There's music and announcements in the restrooms right now, and there'll be certain uh, areas that'll have these announcements brought to you by Vibonomics, a startup. And what it does is that it helps the startup, the local startups, because it gives them an opportunity to beta test their, their products. And then they could take that to the rest of the world. Where does this come from, Mario? Like you're doing things here, uh, that I've never seen in any other airport and you're creating experience. So can you talk a little bit about what your philosophy is on customer experience and how do you create this uh, amazing place here where you feel safe, but you also feel, I feel more relaxed here, if that makes well, sense. It, well, it, it, it's simple. Going back to who owns this place, it's a basic philosophy and we wrote a whole strategic plan about it, but it, it boils down to a very simple concept, which is simple to, to say, but it's kind of difficult to deliver. Since you own this and we can't monetize that ownership because of many federal laws, what we could deliver is public value. So in delivering public value, we deliver a heightened sense of customer service, a heightened sense of economic impact, a heightened sense of employee engagement and community engagement. So it's all of that put together. And that's basically our focus. So in other words, whatever enhances this terminal, we will do. And whatever enhances your experience and the community at large will do. It's hard to deliver and hard to put into words because it's kind of, it doesn't have a metric. Dollars and cents, a P&L has metrics. If you had a company, you know, I could tell you a profit and loss statement. That's simple. Giving you a profit and loss statement when it comes to customer service and, to comes, and when it comes to public value is extremely difficult because there's no dollar and cents associated with it. Uh, you know, we win awards all the time. That's one of the gauges that we have. I think we were number one airport in the United States, according to our trade association, for seven years in a row. And we'll probably, hopefully, knock on wood, win this year also. But we're delivering things that others don't deliver because most people focus on a bottom line. We're focusing on you. So, you know, if you focus in on bottom line, eventually you're going to run into the situation where, hey, let's make more money. And the problem with making more money is that what do you do? Most, it gets lost in the translation. If you don't, if you make more money and don't reinvest it and increase your customer perception, you're not really adding public value to anything. And most other places just kind of like make more money 
and either give it to the airlines, back to the airlines, which that's probably, that's part of the deal that most airports have, or stack it up someplace. Makes sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering, when you walk into an airport, what do you see? Like, I What's used to work- What's the first thing you notice? Yeah, what do you notice? Like, I used to work uh, for Starbucks, and like, when I, whenever I walk into a Starbucks, I just, my eyes go to floor to ceiling. What are they doing? Is it clean? How are they serving? Do you have that same reaction? When you you go know, basically the same thing. I look at how easy it is to navigate. Are things put in nice places? Are the concessions good? In, in most cases, the answer is no, because it's not about making money at an airport. This is easy. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've got a captive audience of 10 million passengers. I could make money. The trick is to give you value for your money and to make sure your experience is elevated. If you have to park on the, on the roof and it's raining, you could take one of our umbrellas. We've got stacks of umbrellas, so you yeah, won't get wet. Yeah, just bring them back if you want. Bring them back. <laughs> bring them back. Yeah. You know, this kind of goes back to, it reminds me a lot of a Japanese philosophy we call omotenashi, which mm -hmm. is kind of this idea of being able to anticipate what the customer is going to need before they actually need it and really being that whole idea of hospitality and hospitability. It kind of goes along in, in that line and I think that's one of those things that a lot of places miss and I feel like you guys are really hitting that mark on that. And tell yeah. us a little bit more about well, those kinds of... That really is part of our philosophy. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that our customers feel valued. And feel a positive value all the way to their plane and off to their final destinations. And we're delivering that day after day. So like I said, we always question the status quo. What can we do better every day? And if you take it outside of the terminal, it starts expanding. What can we do better for the economy? What we're trying to do is not export economic impact. We're trying to be very parochial with everything that we do and try to keep everything in house. If we use a tech company, it's going to be a local tech company. If we buy furniture, if it better be in Indiana. If we're going to buy anything and we're going to source anything, it's going to be from here. I think that's an incredible philosophy. And uh, I have a bone to pick with you, Albert. Because of my experiences here, I'm constantly disappointed by other airports. You should be. That's the problem. It should be, it should so be horrifying. I'm really upset at you. Well, you know, you know what's interesting? All my career, I've been looking at the status quo and breaking the status quo. It's incredible. Change is incredibly difficult for human beings. It's incredibly difficult because it, it signifies some loss somewhere down the line. But if you concentrate on change and you constantly make change, and I know in your career fields, that's kind of like the norm, you get this wonderful thing. You get these wonderful experiences and this wonderful result if you just concentrate on changing. That's where the innovation starts. That's where the innovation starts. You know, we, I, built an airport in Long Beach, California. And it was pretty interesting because the, 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 the initial conversation was, why should an airport look like an airport? And at the end of the day, we came up with the conclusion that it shouldn't. So it, the terminal looks like a resort hotel. Fire pits, 17-foot fire pits with wine bars, restaurants outside, indoor palm courts, post-security. So it looked completely different. You could do that in California. You can't kind of do that here. It's too cold. But it's... it's <laughs> It's, uh, well, it is it, gorgeous. I, I actually flew into that one instead of flying into LAX just because. Oh, you liked it? Yeah, and I loved it. I yeah. was like, this is awesome. Was that recently? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, this is great. I, like, I kind of want to stay here. Oh, like, the airport that Mario built. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's interesting, you know, everybody has this image that you should take like an LAX sort of thing and shrink it down. And 
we didn't put any contact gates, so no loading bridges. And that was done purposely because when you get to Southern California and you open the door of the aircraft, you exit on a ramp, down the ramp to the tarmac, and then you're there. It's a sense of place. A sense of place. A sense of place. I like that a lot. You know what's interesting? You're going to find this interesting. We're here for the community and we're here for you, the business community, the the local community, leisure travel. And we want to support the community as best as we can, uh, both in customer service, economic development, and everything else that we do with the community. And and I gave this example to 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 our staff that the Denver airport, it's a horrible airport for Denver. We were all we just, were there. just there. Yeah, we were just <laughs> there. Think, think about it. The Denver airport was designed with operations in mind, functionality. But no one went to Denver and sat down with the true ownership of the airport and said, would you like us to put the airport an hour and a half away from your businesses, from your homes? If, you're, if you run an engineering firm, for example, you've just lost three hours in travel of productivity that you can't get back. If you travel to see your family in Denver, you just have an hour and a half cab ride. Now, you could take the, the light rail that they have out there, which is wonderful. But could that money have been used for something else if you didn't put this airport out in the back 40. What was the reasoning for that position? Because everybody forgot who the ownership is. Everybody forgot to look at Denver and say, Denver, this is your airport. What do you want your airport to do? What, you want your airport to be convenient? Nah, you know, they actually looked at the functionality and how to serve the airlines better instead of serving the customers better. So ultimately, you're the ownership of this airport and people from Denver and the surrounding areas are the owner of Denver International Airport. Now, it functions perfectly. That's not the hard part. It's just like physics. Everybody says, you know, physics is hard. Physics, it's easy. You've got a formula, you get an output. If you get the right numbers in the right places, you're going to come out with the right output. The human factors are more difficult. Dealing with the ownership of, of the airport, making sure you get a consensus as to where you should put this incredible investment that your community is making through an a large amount of bonds. You know, how do you deal with all these situations? Those are extremely difficult, but everybody forgot that the ownership of the airport is the Denver general area. So no one asked them. Yeah. I think that's what businesses kind of fall into that trap, right? Of when they, they want to do right, they're not going out there trying to, like you said, screw the customer or, or the consumer, but then they get so inwardly focused on their outputs and their operational processes that they kind of forget that whole aspect of let's get that outside in perspective. Right. And it's that whole element of actually trying to do service design where you do make that question and you do ask those questions of who are we really serving? And like you said, of challenging that status quo. Um, I think you have a long history of doing mm -hmm. that. Uh, one of the great ones that you've uh, mentioned before is your time in New Orleans. I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more. Oh, that sure. That was, that was, it, it, you've all been to New Orleans. New Orleans is fantastic because it's a place that culturally doesn't exist inside the United States. It really is. It, it's the most fabulous place in the world. It is its own thing. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. This place is like amazing. If you've ever wanted to go to a foreign country within the continental United States, you have to go to New Orleans. Go to New Orleans. Oh, yeah. They, they work and, and they don't really care about the rest of the world. They're fantastic people. It's a different culture. The food is phenomenal. I put on 
actually, when I went to California, I lost 35 pounds without dieting. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It was like New Orleans. Is that just because it's expected in Long Beach that you look fabulous and cut the whole no, time? No, no, no. Because look, I'll tell you about my first meal in Long Beach and my last meal in New Orleans. My last meal in New Orleans, I went to Mr. B's and had barbecue shrimp. And it's not barbecue shrimp. This shrimp, it, the, it, the, for six prongs, the recipe calls for a pound of butter. And then it comes out in a wonderful bowl with a half of loaf of French bread. And you have to soak up this butter and eat the prawns. And obviously before that, you have to, and before that you've actually had a salad in order and in order for them to fix the salad, because salad is not really good. Uh, they put two fried oyster on top. So, oh, so it kind of fixes That's a the great problem. Salad. It's like putting a Big Mac on a salad. It, exactly. Like, uh, it it fixes the problem. <laughs> yeah. And then you have a big chunk of bread pudding. And some coffee, and then you come out of the restaurant, you start hyperventilating because of the heat, but it's actually because of everything that you eat. My first meal in, in Long Beach was a salad, nicest looking salad I've ever seen, a piece of salmon, nicest piece of salmon, and a white wine. My body went into shock immediately because there wasn't there wasn't enough butter in the whole. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> the butter it wasn't and the cream. soaked in a pound of <laughs> butter. So it's just, it's just the way they eat and the way they live. It's uh, I call her joie de vivre. You know they yeah. love they love to to live life and they work to live, not the other way around. So having said that, I get there and it's really an interesting place because I kind of like to fix problems because if not, life would be boring without having to fix something, uh, whether you call it fixing or just adjusting or whatever. Gives you purpose. So, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> So I, I get there and the finances are shambles. At the Louis Armstrong. At the Louis Armstrong. The airport is obsolete. The finances are shambles. The airfield is falling apart. Sounds like a dream job for you. It, no, it, it is actually. Planes are landing. Yeah. Chunks are coming off of the runway. Great. The FAA is calling that they're going to close down the airport. The, the main feed of tourism into the city. It's like a dream job. So we float about, fix the finances a little bit, fix uh, you know, we float about $300 million worth of bonds to fix the entire airfield. And one day I'm sitting around, I'm just a dumb engineer, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm looking at the levee system, and I'm going, that doesn't look right. Could you see them from your office? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, you could see them, but I, it never registered in my brain. I never lived underwater before. Mm -hmm. So it never registered in my brain. So when you see these things. And, and do they like, can you give us a sense of where the levees are in relationship to the airport or the surrounding? They're, they're on the north side, preventing the lake from coming into the airport. Okay. Uh, so it would be on the north side and the south side's a little bit higher. So it just protects the periphery of the airport. So I'm looking at it and going, oh, my God, this is not right. You know, it's you can see them dipping and ha they've settled in weird ways. I, it never registered that it was a levy, though. I, I just thought it was part of the security system of the airport. And my engineers talked to me, no, that's the levy system. And it, the levy system is maintained, owned and maintained by the levy board. It took me about six months to convince the levy board that we were going to fix the levy on our own dime. Because I figured if the levy collapsed. I should dress warm because my next job was going to be in Siberia because no one's going to give us, no one's going to allow me to bond anything from that point. So we armored the levee, raised the levee nine feet, finished their month out of schedule three days before Katrina. The water came within a foot of overtopping the levee and it would have taken out the airport. But the airport, just by geography, became the center of evacuation for the entire city. Um, to the point that 
that airport for three days became the busiest airport on the planet. It, most people don't know it, but uh, Atlanta at the time, which was the busiest airport, had 2,740 operations on a daily basis, landings and takeoffs. We had 3,200. Helicopters coming in, dropping people off. We put those people on airplanes. They flew off. You know, all our staff came in. We had skeleton crews, but all our staff came in. We lived in our offices for two months, lived at the Hilton for 71 days. And I think I told you this before I became a Hilton Diamond member. I walk into a Hilton and people <laughs> drop to their knees. I'm not kidding. It's like, we are not worthy of your presence. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's like amazing. I get free water, free breakfast. It's great. Well, you get free bottles of water. Wow. Yes, exactly. Right. So there you go. Why not get free water? That's why I feel like exactly. such an important person. Exactly. Free bottle of water when I walked in. Exactly. So, and then I lived in, we, we created this FEMA trailer park inside the airport for everybody that worked at the airport. And we lived there for about two years until things got settled down. Uh, and everything worked out very well. Uh, we had 22 deaths in the terminal, unfortunately. And we had to move those bodies into another location. And we had 20 births in the terminal. That is incredible. Well, one of the interesting parts is that I mean, we got to know each other a lot better than we knew each other, the staff, because there was about 60 people and we had one shower. But it was an interesting sort of dynamic at the end where you have these colleagues that become dear friends. And I still have incredible friends in New Orleans and I always go back for Mardi Gras. Man, how do you as a leader navigate that situation without passing out? or having like a panic heart attacks. attack, a panic attack. Right. Just when you know like, okay, Katrina's hitting. <laughs> we have these levees that we just built. And now I've got suddenly on my hands, what was a crumbling uh, airport is now the busiest airport in the world. And all these people are looking at me to navigate through this tragedy. How do you do that as a leader? You take a deep breath. If you panic, everybody else is gonna panic. So you make decisions. And out of every three decisions, Two are horrible. One was very good, but two were horrible. So you just fix the decisions. And, and you have to realize in some cases, you're not in control of the entire situation. You can't be. There's no way to be in control of the situation. How this whole thing started, I was sitting in my office contemplating breaking a plate glass window open so I could get some air because I was smoking a cigar because I had to save the cigar. It wasn't really a Cuban cigar because Cuban cigars were illegal at that time. Right, right, right. So it was, it was just a cigar. Right. From Cuba. From um, Cuba. <laughs> so it was. That in, may or may not have. May or may not have. It, it landed in my say? drawer somewhere. So I'm smoking the cigar and my fire chief comes in. And at that point, he's lost the ability to speak English. He's, he's going off in Cajun. And he's calling me Mr. Rodriguez because he can't pronounce Rodriguez. So he's. <laughs> lost the ability to speak English at that point. And I'm going, what is going on? And he goes, we're running out of stuff. And I go, what do you mean we're running out of stuff? He goes, people are being dropped off on helicopter at the airport. By the way, all of this happened organically. Right. No one really organized Nobody this stuff. called you and said, hey, Mario, can we just drop everybody exactly. off here? Exactly. It just started happening. Yeah, our airport. Because you were like the one dry spot. The one dry spot. And then the other dry spot was Baton Rouge, which is too far away. And a helicopter was going to go over there. And the bridges to Mississippi had collapsed and no one was going to go over to Pontchartrain. So by default, we were it. And at the end, you've got all this mass of humanity ending up in the terminal. And, you know, you just have to keep your head about you and make sure that your folks are working. And it's fantastic because it's at the end, 
You can't do it while you're doing it, but it really is a case study as to who there, there were people that incredibly broke down. So we moved them over to the side. We were gentle. We were thoughtful. We moved them over. There were some people that relied on process and you can't rely on process on that. And there were some people that stepped up. So you had these three type of folks that just like went back into their process world and said, well, you know, we've got paperwork and then, and then, and then. So it really is an interesting sort of dynamic when you're dealing with these three or multiple groups. Uh, you know, there's variance on each to try to keep them pointed in the right direction. And there was one time we had we had about 10,000 people in the terminal. You had 10,000 people in, the, in terminal. the terminal. So what what is a regular day in the terminal look like people-wise? Hey, you don't have 10,000 people laying around. You don't. Well, yeah, I would assume you know, that. Yeah. And basically, basically, it made it their home until we could get the OD aircraft in there to, to, to get them out of the general area. But you get these 10,000 people, and they're scared. And, you know, they've, been ju- they've just been picked off up off the roof. A lot of them have weapons because it's important to have a weapon if your street floods because you're scared. You know, it's just think about that. So, so you've got a whole armed contingent of population inside of your terminal, and it's about to explode. It's hot in there. There's very little water. So the solution is you open all the concessions and you have the people start cooking because that's what they do. We got we had gas. The refrigerators were out, so we had them cook for everybody else. And then I had a group of people pick up furniture from one concourse and move it to another concourse. And then I had that same furniture moved back. To Just the to day. give them something Just to, to give do. them something to do. Some people were picking up trash. You know, as long as you keep them going and they understand the world isn't coming to an end. And it all worked out. We never had any incidents. Everybody was treated with respect. Uh, there was no assaults, nothing. It was, it was, it was everybody did what they were supposed to do. Was that your answer to the, uh, was it the fire commissioner? So I'm picturing you in your office smoking what may or may not have been a, a Cuban, Cuban cigar, cigar. Thinking, with my feet gonna, on the desk. Yeah, with your feet on the desk, thinking I'm going to uh, punch this window. Yeah, uh, I'm going to knock the window off. Then you I'm... have um, this gentleman coming in, uh, can't speak English anymore. And uh, he says, we're running out of stuff. We're running out of stuff for people that are coming off the roof. Remember, right. some of these people weren't doing that well, so they needed IVs. They needed medical treatment. Some of them passed away just because they were old right. and they weren't in good shape. And we started getting a lot of stuff from different areas, from the Department of Defense, and FEMA brought in a lot of products and a lot of medical things. So we actually worked our way through this. And Chief was hilarious because Chief just showed in my showed up in my office in a red jumpsuit. It was a red fire jumpsuit. He looked like it was like a Dalmatian of fire. It was like amazing. <laughs> he was ready to go. He was ready to go. You yeah, could see him running around. what was going to come exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah, he'd had a, a rough day probably. Yeah, well, uh, rough, yeah, yeah, yeah. A rough and, week or so. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting time in my life because it started so organically. And it just kept snowballing to, to a certain degree. One of our accountants, we sent our accountants home because they were non-essential personnel. And suddenly I see him in the concourse. And I'm going, oh, my God, didn't I tell you to go home? What are you doing here? And I guess I was a little bit nervous, and he had to stop me. He said, no, no, stop, stop. They just picked me up off my roof. Okay. And there was another entry. You know, with all this madness, there's these little glimpses of, like, incredibly interesting things. So there was one of my board members contacted us, and he said, well, you know, 
I don't know why we got into the conversation that one of his restaurants was was damaged and his wine room had been flooded. And his sommelier said that the wine is still good, but he can't sell it because it changes the temperature. And he has to, he has to throw it away. And I said, no problem. We'll take care of it. So we sent so we sent the flatbed over there. And in the evening times, we were eating pizza brought by Southwest Airline and brisket and drinking Opus One out of plastic cups. And my my guys are going, this is oh, very good. They're going, better be good. It's a $400 pizza bottle. and Opus One. Okay. That's well, living the life. That's it. In a, in a terminal that's in shambles. It's uh, it was it was it was interesting. Um, I want to speak really quickly about. Yeah. Um, building a team because uh, you are a somebody who's a visionary, a motivator, but um, leaders are oftentimes only as good as the team that they build. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you, uh, what you look for in people that you want to hire? Um, what are some of those things that you're like, I got to have this and I got to have this. This is the kind of person that I'm looking for to work for me. Diversity. Change. You know, people that have different points of view. You know, I've I've heard this over and over again, and it's a bunch of BS. There, there's two types of things. So one is tacit knowledge, and it's how you grew up, what your experiences have been. And the other one is technical knowledge. And you could prove it over and over and over again. And this is part of my philosophy to leadership. Technical knowledge, you can reproduce all the time. Tacit, you can't. If you could, you could reproduce uh, Bill Gates a hundred thousand times because there's been a hundred thousand books written about him. So everybody's an individual. So if you take this individual, creating the ecosystem is the most important. There are people that are strong at some things and weak at others. So if you create this ecosystem, which we do, which we have right now, that's what actually drives everything. And you get wonderful, wonderful things coming out of it. How do you create that ecosystem? Slowly. You start bringing in people slowly. You start looking at their strengths and weaknesses, bringing in people to balance those people out. It's not about having a perfect person. You're not going to get a perfect person. But if you have a group of people to balance each other out and have enough diversity in there to see things in different point of views and have different life experiences that create different decision processes in each of them, you're going to have a great team. And we have a great team right now. And it's just about creating that ecosystem. Now, and, and like I said before, physics compared to that is easy. Creating that ecosystem is extremely difficult. And you go through a lot of starts and stops and a lot of a lot of problems within the team until it actually gels. And when it gels, voila, you have a great team. And you can you've built a team that can uh, literally weather any storm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just the amount, the fact that you had people around you in New Orleans, the fact that you built that team up so well that they're willing to go in there and stay in the trenches with you. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and they covered each other's weaknesses mm -hmm. during the storm. Uh, it, it was a, a really interesting process. But, you know, if you, if you get that sort of team, it tends to balance each other out. I'd rather have a balanced team than a team of superstars. But if you have a team that's balanced, that understands what they're there for and has a clear mission and vision, you get wonderful things done. And we do have that here. 
We've got incredible people, incredibly intelligent people, incredibly coordinated people, and people that actually see things through different lenses. And how do you get people to understand that mission and value, right? Because it's something that, you know, it's like a pie in the sky or something that's always written on walls. No, it, or it takes right? time. Like, it, ta it, it, it takes time. It's not a technical answer. It's an adaptive answer. You have to adapt the team and get them to see things the way they are. Look, for the longest time, everybody has mistakenly thought that this place is a business and it delivers a bottom line. It is, but it's your business and it delivers public value, which is an incredibly esoteric sort of concept. And the entire team here lives it and you can see the output. So it takes time for people to adapt and change. It's behavior modification. It basically is. And having people change the way they think takes time because, you know, even changing what's so simple as changing technology is an incredibly painful thing for people going from program A to program B or device A to device B. Imagine changing your whole concept. It's a lot more difficult. It takes a lot of time. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing career-wise? I'd be sitting on a beach. Nice. And getting paid for it. And getting paid for With it. With a cigar that may or may not may be. From who knows where. No, no. It's Drinking God, an no. Opus wine Drinking with some pizza. <laughs> with some pizza. <laughs> with some pizza. <laughs> of course Opus One goes with pizza. Of course it does. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> Domino's and Opus One. Tasty. Isn't that wonderful? It's the breakfast of champions. The, <laughs> well, I, I hate to... You know what's interesting? We were... We had, and this is another interesting story from New Orleans. Here comes this guy, and as long as I live, I'll remember this. He looks like Smokey the Bear. I mean, big hat, suspenders, the whole nine yards. And he goes, sir, I'm here to help you. What? And he goes, I'm with the forestry service. I've got this stuff, and I'm ready to put it down. And I go, well, put it between concourse A and B. We don't, we're not using it. So he builds this tent basically overnight. Kitchens, laundry facilities, sleeping facilities. And in the evening time, we're eating steaks. And I'm going, oh my God. It, it, I finally realized that these are the guys that fight forest fires. So this guy base, builds these facilities to feed firemen and firewomen and you know, feed all the people that are fighting these horrible fires in, in Southern California. So that's not the funny part. The funny part is we're under this incredible stress. And I'm looking at uh, my my commercial development person. And I'm we're, we're talking to him. We're going, hey, are you gaining weight? And we're going, yeah, we're. I feel like I'm gaining weight. How the hell does that happen? We're under stress. We're like, right? So I'm, I'm casually talking to Smokey the Bear. I don't even remember his <laughs> name. And I'm going, hey, uh, we're kind of gaining weight. He goes, don't tell me you're eating all three meals. And I'm going. Yeah. Well, why shouldn't I? It's breakfast, lunch, and right. dinner. He goes, he goes, dude, those things are designed to be 2,500 calories each. Oh. They're designed, they're de basically designed for, you know, fire personnel. Your entire day. Your entire day. Yes. And we're like eating these things. Wow. Like, it's like, oh my God. And we're like, it's like, I cannot believe that. Were they soaked in butter? Yeah, it was yeah. wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. Pork chops. It was, yeah, I, I don't know if it was wonderful or we were just hungry. MREs are horrible. Never eat an MRE. I've actually got, I'm not going to tell you why, but I have three MREs at my house right now. Don't In eat them. Don't eat them. You never know. 
you never know. I'm ready. But oh, in case them. of a zombie apocalypse, eat them. Eat them, by but, all means. but only then. But only then. <laughs> and the cheeses. Right. No cheeses. No cheeses and no MREs. My diet is becoming more and more specific now. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm going to start losing weight pretty soon. <laughs> This has been incredible. Oh, thank Thanks you very, very much. very much for your time, Mario. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. I could uh, talk to you for six, seven more hours, but you're busy. No, I got to do stuff. So. Thanks. Yeah, you got, you got, you got lives to save. Thanks a lot, man. Thank I really you appreciate so it. Thank you very much. Appreciate both of you coming.